DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, Erdogan triumphant. What next for Turkey? Plus spy ships and fishing tackle, a trip to Norway's far north. Then two summits for the price of one. We've been checking out the European Political Community Summit in Moldova as well as the Unlock Summit in Prague. These people do activism, do do journalism in their countries. They face danger for that. But in a way, this this is exactly what this event is about. We we try to bring people together to actually share the strategies and shared successes and stories of how they actually overcome. That's all coming up. The new president of Turkey is the old president of Turkey. Recep Tayyip Erdogan has fought off the most serious challenge yet to his two decades of power, beating opposition challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu in an election which international observers described as free but not fair. Our Istanbul correspondent Dorian Jones has been in election reporting mode for many weeks now. What I asked him went so badly wrong for Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the man pollsters had initially tipped to win. At the ballot box itself, there wasn't any major allegations of misdeeds or fraud. But the election itself, well, this is, for most observers, both nationally and internationally, is considered the, probably the most unfair election in Turkey's democratic history. And you have to go back to 1950. Virtually the whole mainstream media is under the direct or indirect control of Erdogan. And uh, his challenger, Kılıçdaroğlu, was invisible. In fact, in one case, uh, they were showing the ballot paper, which has the uh, pictures of both the candidates. And they had removed the image of the challenger, Kılıçdaroğlu or just seeing a picture of Erdogan. And in many ways, that just reflected how mainstream media uh, covered this. And even telephone companies, they refused to carry uh, messages uh, by Kulichtolu. And that was his message afterwards. He said that this was an unfair election. And that stance really was uh, backed up by observers, both from Turkey and international observers as well. So very hard for opposition candidate Kamal Kalishtaolo to get his message across. But that message itself, when it was heard, underwent quite a dramatic shift following the first election. We reported on, well, you reported on this for us uh, last week, Dorian, but maybe you could explain what happened, why it happened, and whether or not that was actually a tactical misfire. Yeah, I mean, Kulich de Orlo really was facing a political mountain. In the first round, he fell short by about 5%. And that 5% of the votes uh, was taken up by this hardline uh, nationalist uh, leader called Sinan Oan. And he surprised many people because he came from nowhere. And with his very powerful nationalist message, anti-refugee message, Kulich de Orlo was, from his calculation, for his ch- only chance of uh, overtaking Erdogan in the second round, making up that 5% points, he needed to get that nationalist vote. And what you saw was that he made a sharp pivot onto anti-refugee stance. Uh, and uh, that did work well in the west of the country. But what it did was it alienated Kurdish voters in the southeast of the country. It was always a difficult balancing act. And in some ways, uh, that balancing act proved probably one step too much for Kulich Dolo and was the reason why he fell short against Erdogan. Now, Dorian, you're talking to me from Istanbul, which has long been seen as a bastion of progressive politics in Turkey. What's the mood like there? 
Well, Istanbul is in many ways encapsulates the whole country. I mean, it's a vast city and uh, it has in the last few years shifted towards the left. Uh, they made a sensational victory a few years ago, taking control of the Istanbul mayorship. Uh, and that was in many ways was seen as a hope, as a springboard by the opposition to bring down Erdogan himself. That didn't prove to be the case. And I think that there is now a sense of foreboding in this city of what will now another term of Erdogan rule mean. Because Erdogan in his uh, victory speech made very clear he now sees retaking Istanbul mayorship as a key target. And elections are to be due to be held next year. The mayor of Istanbul, a very popular, charismatic leader, Ekrem Imamoglu, widely tipped in the future to possibly challenge Erdogan. He has an outstanding court conviction against him for insulting a public official. There is speculation he could be possibly even removed from office now that Erdogan is emboldened with this new political mandate. But the key thing going forward now is that Istanbul is seen to be the the next key battleground in the next year ahead between Erdogan and the opposition. Maybe we can shift now to Ankara, which is where Erdogan supporters poured out in their millions to hear that victory speech that you mentioned. You'll have been watching those images and listening to that speech very, very closely. What signals did Erdogan give about what the future might hold? What can we expect? Well, it was an interesting speech in many ways. On the one hand, he talked about unifying the country, saying that this was a victory for all of Turkey. In fact, he said no one had lost in this election. But on the other hand, in the specifics, he was very hardline. He vowed that the ongoing imprisonment of the very popular uh, former leader of the main Kurdish party, Salatin Demirtas, who is in jail now for more than five years, despite European court rulings, ruling that the, that imprisonment is unjust. He said, that man will never leave prison while I'm in power. And that was seen as a very stark warning to opponents in this country. He will feel emboldened to carry on further down the road that he has followed of more divisive politics, more crackdown on dissent, a very difficult time ahead for anyone that opposes Erdogan's rule. Our Istanbul correspondent, Dorian Jones, there. Now, wrap up warm because we are off to the far north of Norway next. Our interest has been piqued by a recent documentary indicating that thousands of Russian fishing and research vessels are also potentially being used for espionage. This has raised new questions as to why Norway allows these ships to dock in three of its ports. Terry Schultz travelled to one of those port cities, Kirkenes, to see how the local population feels about the delicate situation. Three Norwegian ports remain Russia's only sea access to mainland Europe, as sanctions over Moscow's war on Ukraine have shut its ships out of all other harbours. Russia threatened to pull out of a 50-year agreement with Oslo that protects cod stocks if it wasn't allowed to dock anywhere in Norway. A recent Nordic documentary, however, made clear many fishing ships are fishing for intelligence. It's been a wake-up call. That's Robin Allers, a security expert with the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies. I spoke to him standing next to a port in Oslo, where Russian ships are banned. And there's pressure on Norway now to close the other three ports, where Russia's allowed to land fish hauls and have emergency repairs done to his ships. Out of concern, this facilitates the surveillance. The sabotage of Nord Stream gas pipelines last September, while Russia has not been named as the perpetrator, reminded everyone how vulnerable undersea infrastructure is. Here's Robin Allers again. Norway, I think, has for a long time tried to balance this in a regular way. And now, as we see, 
weekly, monthly, the situation changes. Russia is doing things that makes it very, very hard for everybody to uh, maintain a certain normality. Uh, so you can say this has changed fundamentally in February last year. It again changed after the Nord Stream leakages and perhaps it will change again. So I think the government is quite open to go along with further restrictions and actually close the ports. In Kirkenes, almost 2,000 kilometers north of Oslo, that threat of closing the ports has hung over the town ever since the restrictions were first put in place after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The economy here was heavily dependent on business with Russia, not just by sea, but also across the land border, which is now also almost completely closed to goods and non-essential travel. There will always be a before and after the invasion. Absolutely. For us living here, it will be before and after. That's Jenny Spring. She grew up here when crossing the border was a normal part of life for citizens on both sides, even for things as common as filling up on gas. She now works at the Barents Secretariat, supporting business opportunities and people-to-people contact in the region, and says some days it's hard to be optimistic. Because we have been cooperating with Russia for uh, about 30 years. Actually, in January, we marked the 30th anniversary of uh, Norwegian-Russian cooperation. It should have been like a celebration, but it was like a funeral of the Barents Corporation. Spring says everyone in Kirkenes supports the sanctions, but that every shop owner has been affected already. She says if the ports are completely closed, it will be a disaster. Many people might be unemployed now um, for the time coming because the maritime industry, uh, who are dependent on Russian customers, they can no longer serve. Uh, for example, a Russian fishing fleet. So, of course, these people we need to find new jobs for them or we need to to find other markets because Russia is no longer a market that we can have or use. So, uh, so for example, at Kimek, the shipyard, they have 83 employees. So it's a huge business there for uh, our size, uh, this community. So, of course, if they are get unemployed, that's a catastrophe. And that's what the owner of the Kimek shipyard has been warning if Russian vessels are completely banned. He's critical the government is even debating closing the port. But he refused our request for an interview. At a town hall meeting, other Kirkenes residents were willing to speak out about their concerns with Norwegian trade minister Jan Christian Vestje, who says their angst is understandable. I fully understand how and why they are concerned about the future. It's our job now to find solutions, to bring some hope and some new ideas and see what we can do together in a private-public partnership. That being said, we fully support and we are 100% committed to the European sanctions. We cannot and will not let Russia win this war. So we have to deal with the sanctions and then we have to make sure that this transition for this community can be done in the best possible way. And I'm optimistic about the future based on what we have heard today. Kirkenes Port Director Terje Jürgensen says there are business opportunities, even though some might be controversial. Nobody's going to be buying Russian goods. So that leaves China. Yes, that leaves China. We're talking with Chinese operators. And that is also a delicate question. And we may be accused of uh, going from intimate cooperation with uh, Russia to intimate cooperation with China. But still, there is goods transported from Asia to Europe still. And as long as there is one T-shirt going from uh, Asia to Europe, it should go through the Northern Sea Route because it's shorter. It's an an environmental-friendly route to pursue. So, so we use that argument. Norway's national security strategy specifically includes keeping northern towns populated, so Oslo must now balance the dangers and benefits of keeping some Russian ties intact. Terry Schultz, DW, Kirkenes, Norway.
And for more of Terry's reporting, you can follow her on Twitter and Mastodon. Stay tuned now, because Summit's coming up. The complaints address for terrible puns, by the way, is insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany, and you heard them on Inside Europe. As promised, the first of two summit-centred stories. Both involve small post-Soviet countries hosting other countries from the post-Soviet space, but their vibe, purpose and clientele are very different. We begin in Moldova, where 47 heads of state and government met on Thursday for the European Political Community, or EPC, summit. Moldova, which borders Ukraine, is the second poorest country in Europe and fears that it may be next on Putin's list should Moscow prevail over Kyiv. The EPC summit, which spotlighted resilience after a year of unprecedented challenges, is one of the biggest diplomatic events in the small Eastern European countries' post-Soviet history. Journalist Stephen McGrath reports from Moldova's capital, Chisinau. Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February sent shockwaves throughout Europe, from triggering widespread economic turmoil to an energy crisis, to fears that the conflict could spill beyond Ukraine's borders. But among the hardest-hit countries by the war is Moldova, a non-NATO nation of 2.6 million people that has arguably faced one of its most turbulent periods since independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. At times, many feared that the country could get dragged into the war. Especially in the first months, I really felt threatened, I guess, because you never knew how fast they could advance. And luckily, the Ukrainians have kept the, their ground like really well. Like Kudos to them, because if it wasn't for them, we'd be like sitting ducks. The first months after the war were the most challenging, because all of my friends, including me, we had the suitcases ready just in case. Tensions also flared last year when a string of mysterious explosions hit Moldova's separatist region of Transnistria, a Moscow-backed slice of land in the country's east that claimed independence after a short civil war in the early 90s. Even today, Russia stations about 1,500 troops there, calling them peacekeepers. As many observers note, Moldova, which became a European Union candidate last June, has long been caught in a geopolitical power struggle between Moscow and the West, each vying for influence in Europe's eastern reaches. Concerns culminated this February when Moldova's pro-Western president, Maya Sandu, publicly accused Moscow of allegedly plotting to topple her government. She said that Russia would use foreign saboteurs at recurring anti-government protests organised by Moldova's Russia-friendly shore party as a vehicle to foment unrest. The plan for the next period involves actions involving diversionists with military training and camouflaged in civilian clothes. They'll undertake violent attacks, attacks on state buildings and even take hostages to overthrow the constitutional order. 
But despite myriad challenges, including rampant inflation and a cost-of-living crisis, small Moldova has displayed big resilience in the face of a litany of crises. On Thursday, Moldovan airspace was closed as it hosted the second edition of the European Political Community Summit, with scores of high-ranking officials attending from nearly 50 EU and non-EU countries. The event, held at a historic castle about 40 kilometres from Chisinau, aims to promote dialogue and strengthen security, stability and prosperity in Europe. I'm in Stefan Chalmari Park in the centre of the city to speak to Korea diplomat George Sagin. It was here, between 1989 and 1991, the year of independence, that violent clashes periodically broke out between Moldovan nationalists and those who favoured Soviet ties. It's important that uh, such opportunity, wonderful opportunity that Moldova has at this point to come closer to the Western uh, standards, to come closer to the EU standards, to open the negotiation uh, under the EU treaty, to have uh, this uh, path without any challenges that uh, Moldova will turn its back to the European integration process. On May the 21st, a pro-European rally was held in Chisinau, which saw tens of thousands of Moldovans converge to show their support for the pro-Western government. That turnout dwarfed the numbers at anti-government protests that have been periodically held since last autumn. So how tough a year has it been for Moldovan officials? I went to meet Mr Igor Grosu, the Speaker of the Parliament and the Chairman of the ruling Party of Action and Solidarity, to find out. This year was certainly very complicated. It was complicated even if the front line is far from Moldova and the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people are doing extraordinary things by liberating their territory. Moldova continues to be under hybrid threats and blackmail. Kremlin propaganda is omnipresent in Moldova. We're fighting a fierce battle against this phenomenon. The historic EPC summit is an opportunity for Moldova to consolidate support on its path toward Europe, a much-needed boost after a gruelling year. We'll do everything possible to use this window of opportunity and bring Moldova closer to Europe, to the civilised world, to the world of peace. Stephen McGrath, DW, Moldova. Moldova may have got to host politicians and policymakers at the EPC summit, but for coders, journalists and activists from the former Soviet space, the Unlock Civic Tech Summit in Prague was the place to be. The meeting, held between May 25th and May 26th, bills itself as showcasing the latest trends in activism, media and technology in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and was even more relevant than usual this year in view of Russia's war with Ukraine. Our correspondent, Rob Cameron, was in the Czech capital to check it out. Belarusian activist Anton Motolka, founder of the Belarusian Hayun project, which uses crowdsourced news and data from partisans in Belarus to report on Russian troop movements inside the country. It couldn't be more sensitive. In fact, Anton's talk was not even included on the public program. Anton, whom the Belarusian authorities describes as a terrorist and is now based in Lithuania, told me more about the project. 
We collect and publish like mostly all information that we have because we think that like open data it helps all our partners. I mean, and Ukrainians and Polish and Western countries, like people who work to and help Ukrainians to win. So we understand that we want to help them because Belarus involved and Lukashenko helps the Russians. So we want to help Ukrainians and get in the public. It sounds extremely dangerous what you're doing. Yeah, but I became a terrorist like more than one year before, so it's or oh, maybe in April 2021. So for me, it's like one terrorist or two terrorists. It doesn't matter. So it, yes, it's dangerous, but uh, in the same time, people in Belarus and Ukraine are killed by by in Ukraine by Russians in Belarus by Belarusian. Uh, Siloviki or KGB, so we need to. I mean, I'm based in NATO country, so I uh, feel be more safety than people inside in Belarus. So I can, if I can do this, I need to do this. So Unlock, now in its seventh year, brings together a host of mostly young activists, bloggers, journalists, and tech experts here at Kasarna Karlin, a dilapidated but impressive 19th-century Austro-Hungarian barracks. Armenians mingle with Azeris, Ukrainians with Georgians, Kyrgyz with Kazakhs. It's a slice of post-Soviet life in the heart of Central Europe. Rostislav Valvoda is the head of the Prague Civil Society Center, which organizes Unlock. The surrounding is a little counterintuitive, isn't it? Like it's it's really kind of this nice hipster, hipster environment and and uh, and and sun and and people talking, but indeed these people do activism, do do journalism in their countries. They face danger for that. The reality is dark enough. What we want to bring forward and what we want to highlight and what we want to give people a chance to share is the stories of how they actually overcome, how they how they are winning, how they are actually building. And they are. I mean, some of these you know, projects and the media uh, that, that people have created play an amazing, a huge role for their societies. And it's truly impressive how, how they have built it up from, from very little with very little resources. Overshadowing this year's event, of course, is the brutal war being waged by the country that sees this entire post-Soviet space as its sphere of influence, regardless of what the people of those countries might think about the matter. Mariam Nayem is a Ukrainian academic of Afghan origin specializing in Russian colonialism and cultural repression. So I guess uh, the problem is that we are, as Ukrainians understood that this situation with full-scale invasion is not something new for us. This is repetitive action of the empire. And then I think the reason why we start to talk about this so at loud is that it, this is just a symptom of the bigger problem. So Putin is basically a symptom of a bigger problem. It's not um, Russia's Russia of Putin, it's Putin of Russia. There is a lot of other problems because imperialism is a systematic problem that we need to face, acknowledge them and try to deal with them because it's a matter of time when we have another full-scale invasion of, or another country next to Russia. As the delegates to Unlock swapped Twitter bios and scanned QR codes, it would be easy to mistake this meeting as just another tech summit. But listening to the stories of these activists, it soon became clear just what they face back home and how important meetings like this in the safety of a NATO and EU country can be. Rob Cameron, DW, Prague.
A good place here to remind you that the second part of our Digital Futures special will be coming up soon. If you missed part one, you can still listen to it via your podcast platform of preference. This is Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We have two stories coming up for you this half hour. First, an in-depth investigation following the dirty trail of illegal waste dumping in the UK. And I visit some of the worst places that you can imagine. Then, a moment of political reckoning in Spain. This is a moment for Spain to decide where do you want to go. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. We begin with a bit of a departure from our normal format. British producer duo Dan Ashby and Lucy Taylor bring us an in-depth investigation into the murky world of waste disposal, following the dirty trail of British waste from the moment households diligently sort their recycling to where it actually ends up. Essentially, I was laying in a cut field in pools of water, because it had been raining. It was freezing cold. It was a November evening. It's pitch black the middle of the night in the British countryside. A man is hiding in full camouflage, trying to keep his night vision goggles from giving him away. And he's watching. Been here, um, getting on for an hour now. I'm uh, freezing cold. It's very dark. And I am having to lay in the mud. So just a case of waiting now. I think I can hear a lorry coming. It's our people. It's a van, I'm sure it's a van. I'm going right to ground. There's no way on earth they see me out here. Okay. All right. Less than 100 meters away, a van pulls up. The people inside don't know they're being watched. They climb out, they look relaxed. As far as they know, there's no one around for kilometres. But the man in the ditch keeps watching and recording. Someone's got a top job on later. I've seen the tops. Shined over here a few times. Moments later, Everything changes. There's people walking into the brush behind me. Somehow he's been spotted. They're on to him. He runs, hits a ditch and almost falls. The men from the van are chasing him, getting closer, shouting that they're going to kill him. He stumbled into a dark world. 
And now, we're taking you into it too. First, we need to introduce you to that man in the ditch. To find him, I'm driving along a country lane in Hampshire on the south coast of England. It's a wealthy rural area, you know, red brick cottages, tea rooms serving marmite on crumpets. It's hardly what you'd imagine to be the backdrop of organised crime. I arrive at a beautiful house, shining Tesla on the drive. I don't really know what to expect. There are so many stories about Martin Montague that he still feels a bit of a mystery to me. But he's agreed to talk, and he has a lot to say. I'm a normal guy. I mean, I go to work, I come home, uh, you know, I put the TV on, we have dinner, you know. But some things frustrate us as human beings to a point it makes us mad. And it frustrated me to the point it made me very mad. Martin's got close-cropped hair. He's a big guy. Looks like he could easily be ex-military. But as he says, he's a normal guy working as an IT entrepreneur. When criminals started dumping waste near his house, though, even dead animals, it changed him. I live in the countryside and our road near our house was blocked two or three weeks a year. Horse manure, dead animals, building waste, you name it, they just come along and just dump the lot. Um, and I thought, this can't carry on like this. And I said, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to do something. What he was seeing is called fly-tipping. It's a British word. It's when people or companies just dump piles of their waste in the wild. And there's money in it. Serious criminals are getting involved, persuading people to pay them to take their waste away, and then just dumping it. Martin wondered, if they were so brazenly doing it here, then where else was it happening? He started reading, talking to people. He even set up a website, Clear Waste, to publish videos of fly-tipping in the act. And he found out the UK has a problem. I was getting requests for help from people all over the UK. And I visit some of the worst places that you can imagine. They look like bomb sites. London, Birmingham, there's been some down here in South, there's lots up north. He decided he was going to confront the fly-tippers himself. And he did again and again. I've just kept buying stuff. I've got, I've got three drones. I've got one that zooms. I've got one with a searchlight and a speaker on it so you can tell people to stop doing what they're doing. I've got one with night vision on because obviously a lot of this is done at night so I can record them. I've got listening devices, cameras, walkie-talkies, you know, camo gear. And that's how he ended up hiding in a ditch in the dark in that story you heard at the start. I've just rocked up in a field and I'm waiting for the fly-tipping gang to come and supposedly clean up the fly-tipping. Now, I'm laying there, I'm in the dirt, and then this huge tipper truck, double-cabbed tipper truck, turns up. But it went wrong. They spotted his night vision goggles. Before I knew it, there was a whole gang of criminals chasing me for miles. And I'm not talking... You know, a few feet, I was literally running through my life. I was climbing through hedges, ditches, woodland, through water. They'd let dogs go after me. I literally felt like I was running for my life that night. I thought, you know, I could get stabbed or anything. Please leave. Eventually, Martin escaped. Now, he's done this dozens of times. And his website has been inundated with reports of illegal dumping from across the UK. Martin had stumbled across the UK's growing underworld of waste crime, and fly-tipping is just one part of it. 
the UK government claims to be one of the greenest in the world, priding itself on hosting climate summits and pushing for environmental change. But after meeting Martin, we want to know, is the UK really that green when it comes to our waste? So the bread is in plastic, cauliflower, plastic. Why is cauliflower in plastic? There's um, carrots. Carrots, and most of this is actually, it's, it's cheaper to get it in plastic, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I did actually order the carrots loose, but they've arrived in, in a bag. In plastic. Like a lot of people, Dan and I think we're pretty good with our waste. We're married, by the way. So avocados in plastic. Uh-huh. And yeah. We buy our vegetables loose, use reusable cups and carrier bags. We're diligent about our recycling. Okay, so put the so tins obviously in the brown bin for the council recycling soft plastics. You fancy the trip to the supermarket? Stuff them back in their recycling bins. Right. And until now, we've never given it too much thought. But the UK, where we live, is one of the biggest producers of plastic waste per person in the world. Households here, in total, throw away nearly 100 billion pieces of plastic packaging a year. For most people like us, there is no Martin moment. We don't feel angry or frustrated. We just don't think about it at all. We produce waste and someone else takes it away. That's it. But the system is creaking under the weight of all our waste. Hundreds of millions of tonnes of it. The government admitted recently that there were a million fly-tipping incidents last year alone. And the waste that is collected properly? A lot of that is shipped around the world for other countries to deal with. We're going to follow that dirty trail from our dustbin to where our plastic goes on foreign soil. First, we took a look at the government's own Environment Agency and uncovered a worrying allegation that they aren't even following up key leads. So they do have a difficult job, I, I appreciate that. Dr Anna Willits is an environmental defence lawyer who represents waste companies. Prior to becoming an environmental lawyer, I was a waste consultant. Her specialist subject is landfill. She's even got a PhD in it. So she knows a big dump when she sees one. And she keeps seeing them. On her commute, when she's out for a run, she spots them everywhere. And there's one dump in particular that bothered her. It was on her route to work. So I drive past it and I can see in there piles and piles of waste. It didn't look like the sort of site that would have a permit and would have infrastructure and interceptors and seal drainage system and a concreted base to protect the environment. And then also what concerned me somewhat was that I could see people leaving the site as I was driving past from work in the evening and the same people arriving in the morning. And they didn't look well or healthy. And this was ringing some alarm bells for me because often these sorts of sites can be linked to modern slavery and people being forced to work there, not by choice. So I checked on the public register, I know the postcode because I live near to it, of course, and there was no permit and there was no exemption in place. So she called the Environment Agency. They took the details and gave her a reference number. And then, nothing. And I do appreciate it takes time to do this. You can't just turn up at the site and shut the gates. But when it's been reported to you, I perhaps would have expected some action in the next few, next few weeks. After a year, she called again. They told her it was being looked into. I pushed a bit harder and I said, I don't know what you mean by looked into because there's still no permit registered, there's still no exemption registered on, on your public register. And if anything, the pile of textiles actually appears to have got bigger and it's all out in the open, it's not in a building. 
And that was the last correspondence I had on that. So slightly concerned about environmental harm that may be happening here or potential environmental harm, for example, if it were to catch fire. And guess what? It did. Sure enough, I think about six, seven months later, it was after my call, the site caught fire. Quite a few fire engines and thick black smoke swirling around my, my town. Anna says most of her neighbours didn't even realise the site could be illegal even after it went up in flames. She lives in a nice area. Everyone just assumed the dump must be regulated. And she has other stories like this, like another site in a different area she first reported three and a half years ago. She has written letters and sent photographs, showing the dump getting bigger. She's pushed for answers. Now, at last, the agency has agreed to send someone to look at it, but the site appears still to be operating. I felt that I was being fobbed off and they just didn't want to deal with it because it's easier not to. They say that they're under-resourced and they don't have enough time and resource to deal with every report of waste crime, and I understand that, and they want to look at the more serious cases, but... My view is they'll become serious if, if they're not dealt with. The Environment Agency didn't respond to our specific allegations about these sites, but they told us they are cracking down on waste crime with extra funding and frontline staff. And they say they stopped illegal waste activity at 2,700 sites between 2017 and 2020. But under the authorities' watch, there's been a boom in waste crime. It's grown into a £1 billion industry. You might need a coffee to digest this next bit. Another cappuccino, please. And the same, please. UK waste crime is now so bad that even the authorities estimate that nearly a fifth of our trash at some point goes through criminal hands. It's astonishing, isn't it? It is. One in five. I feel like if one in five cafes were run by criminals, we'd know about that. But for some reason, with waste, it just goes under the radar. And imagine if, yeah, one in, one in five places you walked into was, was criminal. There'd, there'd be outrage, wouldn't there? I of mean, you would, you would just take it for granted. But there's something about waste that feels different. Yeah. Can I just check that you're not uh, an organised criminal? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have chocolate sprinkles on top, please. <laughs> the government admits that waste crime is the new narcotics, meaning it's as serious as drug trafficking. The UK creates so much rubbish, it doesn't have the capacity to recycle it at home. So it sends exports abroad. Whatever happens to them, those exports are counted as recycled. So we decided to see what the UK's waste trail really looks like. To find out, we've partnered with Outriders, an investigative publisher in Poland, one of the biggest recipients of UK waste. I was born here and live here for 20 years of my life and then I moved to study. This is journalist Eva Dunal, who works with them. She's walking through a city she loves, Zelena Gora in Poland. It sounds beautiful. And it's got character too. The city's patron is Bacchus, the unrestrained god of wine and revelry. But I'm afraid we're not here for culture or history. Eva is taking us on a different type of tour. That of a city that's received thousands of tonnes of European recycling and has to deal with it. So, she jumps in a taxi instead. And before long, you hear the driver saying, we've arrived. She gets out at a waste processing facility. Have you ever sorted out your plastic so some of it can be recycled? Well, this is where the British supermarket company Tesco 
has sent tons of that recycling to be sorted. It's right next to where people live, and residents told Ava it's to blame for rats, insects, and awful smells. Given all the allegations around how the waste is stored, we wonder whether it's also being sent on to be recycled properly, as the UK government claims. Eva tries to find out, but she comes up against a problem. Actually, this is quite surprising because the plant looks totally empty. Uh, we look inside and there is no one working there, no car around. We look inside and there is a, no dump, no, no any trash, the only thing we observe. It looks like the whole waste centre has closed down, so Ava and a colleague head into the company's offices in town to see what's going on. Elevator doesn't work, so we're taking the stairs. The lift doesn't work, and when they finally get to the top, they ring some more bells to get through doors. But the plant's owner's Eurokey can't speak right now, so Ava decides to get answers elsewhere. Okay, I'm in front of the doors of City Council. Uh, Eva manages to speak to Ursula Podainia, head of the Environmental Protection Office at the City Council, and she confirms the authorities were forced to take action. She says the warehouse stored imported waste, mostly foil, plastic bags and other plastics, but it wasn't necessarily clean. People nearby complained about the smell and about insects in their homes. The council started to take action. Eva discovers that the authorities were so upset with Yuriki that they took them to court for illegally storing waste. And the city council initially won that case, but the appeals are still ongoing. The case has gone all the way to Poland's Supreme Administrative Court. And now, after many battles, the plant is closing down because the company has decided not to apply to extend its license. Now you're smiling. <laughs> she says yes, she's smiling now because it was a relief to finally get the letter that the company wanted the permit to expire. She hopes it's not delayed. She's glad it will end this way. A city council smiling, celebrating the departure of British recycling. Remember, all this was an example of the legal system, a supermarket's recycling sent off to global centres allowing us, the consumers, to think we've done our bit. But instead, we have a waste centre so disliked by some in this community that the city's council took the owners to court, and now this plant is shutting down. The plant's owners, Yuriki, confirm that they've wound down operations in Zelinagora and are not looking to renew their licence there. They told us they appealed a claim from 2016 concerning designated storage location within the property, but that claim has nothing to do with the way they process waste material or their core recycling operations. And all their facilities are regularly audited and certified to ensure they meet the standards set by local environmental authorities. Independent inspections from 2019 and 2020 did not find bad smells, signs of rats or insects. The UK government only has the most basic information in terms of what's happening to this recycling. We have to take the company's word for it that they're recycling as much as they can. With this plant, we've got no evidence to suggest otherwise. But with other companies, campaigners have found tonnes of UK recycling dumped in Poland, Turkey and across Europe.
Until this year, Poland received more British waste than almost any other country. But it tightened up its rules around waste imports, meaning every shipment has to be registered. And imports from the UK have fallen to less than a tenth of what they were last year. But all that waste, it still has to go somewhere. So my name is Jim Puckett. I'm the founder and director of the Basel Action Network, which takes its name from the Basel Convention, which is the world's only treaty dealing with waste and waste trade. Jim and his organization, they're serious. They use intelligence to track waste exports around the world. They do things like sneaking GPS trackers into waste to monitor shipments and see if it's really going where it says it is. And right now, they have concerns about one route in particular. The Netherlands is the country that receives the most UK waste at the moment. That's reassuring to many environmentalists because it's a country with strong laws and regulations. But Jim is not so sure. We're seeing real strong evidence with the trade data we have that the UK at a certain point stopped directly shipping to Malaysia, but seemed to enhance their shipments to the Netherlands. And then the Netherlands amounts of export to Malaysia went up considerably. So it looked like the Netherlands was being used as a turntable. That's significant because if British waste is ending up in Malaysia, it's far more susceptible to being illegally dumped. Jim believes governments are failing their international obligations. They have signed up for a treaty. Illegal trade in the treaty is a criminal act. So it should be absolutely prosecuted as a criminal act. And here the governments are just sitting on their hands. I really think the biggest criminals right now are the governments because they're not doing what they signed up to do under international law. So I think if you're really talking about organized criminality, it's the government. And perhaps his most disturbing allegation is that the concept of recycling has actually allowed more dumping to happen. Initially, it was just blatant dumping. Nobody had an excuse for why they were doing it. And then very quickly, people said, oh, don't worry, we're going to recycle it. And recycling became the password to all kinds of exports of electronic waste, of plastic waste, of old ships, lead-acid batteries, you name it. A lot of it post-consumer. Almost all the waste trade now is characterized as recycling. So they've gotten smart enough to at least say, oh, oh, don't worry, we're going to recycle it. And every time somebody tells me nowadays, don't worry, we're going to recycle it, that's when I need to start worrying. The government say they believe the UK should handle more of its waste at home and are clamping down on illegal exports through tougher controls. But of course, as we know, the waste doesn't stop. It will go somewhere else. Since the 1950s, we have produced 8.3 billion tonnes of plastic, according to Greenpeace, and less than a tenth of that has been recycled. The wasteland? That's not a specific country or place. It's not Poland, nor Malaysia, nor a road in the British countryside. But our waste is in all of those places. Microplastics have been found everywhere, from Mount Everest to the placentas of pregnant women. The wasteland is our planet, and our waste is everywhere. And so far, we haven't found a way to stop it. And if you enjoyed that feature, then I highly recommend that you check out Buried, Dan and Lucy's 10-part investigative podcast for BBC Radio 4. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Poison in the water, still the fact remains. You deny it ever happened.
deny it ever will, deny it ever happened, but it keeps on happening still. There's poison in the water, poison in the rain, poison in the water, but still the fact remains. You deny it ever happened, deny it ever will, deny it ever happened, but it keeps on happening still. We end the programme with an interview that has been almost two weeks in the planning. Racism in Spain was the rubric under which we wanted to talk to our Madrid correspondent, Ashish Sharma. The original occasion for this discussion was a football-focused racism debate, which has been polarising the nation. But it was the results of local and regional elections held last weekend that really confirmed the urgency of the conversation. I'll let Ashish set out the football debacle first. About 10 days ago, uh, Vinicius Jr., Real Madrid star black Brazilian player, was racially abused in a stadium in Valencia. And the abuse was constant. It was from a large section of the crowd. And uh, Vinicius is a player with a lot of character. He's a very strong player and he doesn't shy away from anything. So he ran over to the section of the crowd behind the goal where the abuse was coming from and pointed them out. And then just before the end of the game, for all his woes, he got sent off for violent conduct. That red card was rescinded because TV footage showed that he was actually in a headlock and all he was trying to do was just break free. And the other player from Valencia didn't get anything. So the whole thing really was quite shameful. And I think it was really strongly summed up by Carlo Ancelotti, the Real Madrid manager, in the post-match press conference when, when he made these following comments. What happened here has happened before, but not quite to that extent. Not like that. It's unacceptable. The Spanish league has a problem. So a really strong response there from the Real Madrid manager. Was this reflected across La Liga? How did the Spanish football authorities as a whole respond to the incident, Ashish? Okay, to have to say it woefully, um, Javier Tebas, the president of La Liga, inflamed the whole situation, made it into an international outcry because after the match, Vinicius went on social media and basically said, look, Spain is a racist country, La Liga is racist. And instead of imagining that, you know, you're the president of La Liga, you might have some sympathy, a player, he's only 22. And La Liga president responds by saying, well, you don't know what you're talking about. We've done lots of work against racism. You're just being manipulated. You don't really understand. And of course, that just was the incendiary, if you like. This incident has really been at the forefront of public debate in Spain. And then in the midst of all this, we have these local and regional elections. And there we see a really dramatic rightwards shift. So what happened at the the weekend, basically, is that you've got the anti-immigrant Vox Party, which is now set to be in governing coalitions with the Conservative PP Party, which, by the way, was the overall winner uh, in those elections. They're set to be in governing coalitions in six regions. And this is a constellation that they are now hoping to reproduce nationally. Ashish, what is happening in Spain? Well, this is really quite a shocking development in terms of left-wing, right-wing politics. The left-wing has just blown itself up in many ways, and that really was highlighted in the elections. There's been internal feuds taking place within the ruling Socialist Party, but they were in coalition with uh, Podemos, which was like left of left, if you like. But then some of their executive left 
the socialist ruling party and they formed their own socialist platform and you've just seen a little bit of a disintegration of the left into various areas whereas on the right the Partido Popular which is your traditional conservative party have now been aided and abetted by the well you can call them the fascist party really because that is really where their roots stem from they're very anti-immigrant they're very anti anything to do with reforms they're very anti-equality for women for example which seems really shocking to say that in you know in the 21st century sitting here in in, in Spain in Madrid that people actually vote for a party that genuinely believe that a woman's place should be in the home and not in the workforce they are so determined the right to get rid of Pedro Sanchez to get rid of the social governing party because of the certain legislation that they just oppose that if you're the Tory party you're quite happy to jump into bed with a fascist party just in order to gain power and that is exactly what's going to happen now because the Partido Popular the Tory party didn't win in all of these regions outright uh, votes so that means that they can only rule in coalition and their only coalition partners are Vox and they seem to have absolutely no problems with that you can understand now why Pedro Sanchez decided and he made that decision very very quickly on a Sunday night when he saw what was happening and realized that rather than letting the right have six months to build up the momentum before the elections which were meant to be set in December that he would just smash through that now and put everything on the table and say it's right this is a moment for Spain to decide where do you want to go if you really really don't want this then you've got to get out there you know this is the message left you've got to get one united and two get out there and vote and stop this from happening and that's very much in line with the way Pedro Sanchez plays his politics he just gambles on everything and so far he's won everything so this is going to be a really important turning point it's basically the making or the ending of his political career our Madrid correspondent Ashish Sharma there. As you've just heard, snap elections in Spain have been called for July. So to make sure that you don't miss any of our coverage of that, do subscribe to our podcast. That's it for today. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer Wissam Dalman. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn.